Hey friends, I'm Brian Doak and this is George Fox Talks Theology. This season on the Theology Channel, we are going to do a new thing. Instead of being here in the studio, which we are for most of our episodes, as you know, we're going to bring you live theology events from the campus of George Fox University. Some of these might be planned lectures in the evenings and some of these might be a classroom environment um, where we're teaching our students about scripture. But whatever the case, you got to imagine yourself in a live setting with an audience there. And if you're watching these, of course, on YouTube, you can see it. And if you're listening, you can think about it and, pl and place yourself right there in the seat of that audience. Really excited for these because they're all so good. We hope you enjoy. So our deepest desire is in the Christian story. And if you uh, are applying what Mary Jo said in the last talk, you might immediately think, oh, I ought to be skeptical about this title. How in the world can he talk about our desires? He doesn't even know me. And, and of course, it's always hard to make claims about people's desires. So I just want to frame this in the beginning that I really believe there are a fundamental set of desires that are widely shared among human beings, even if they're not universal. So the fact that there might be um, objectors or people who say, no, those don't reflect my deeper desires, um, that doesn't bother me. I think these are widely shared. And if you're one of those people that don't share these desires, then much of what I say will not be persuasive to you. And that's okay, because we never persuade uh, everybody. Um, and our desires are linked, I think, to a shared project. This is an experiment here with technology. Look at that. Okay. Um, every human being has the same project. This is a fundamental fact about human existence. And our project is to navigate our lives the best we can. Every person is, is in the middle of his or her own story and trying to make life work. And at each phase of our lives, we encounter various challenges. You come to the university, you have a new set of challenges, you, you graduate the university, and you have an entirely new set of challenges. And then you have, um, you may start a family, and then the challenges never end. And, and each phase, we're navigating these challenges. But we're all trying to make sense out of our lives. We're making our way in the world. We sift opportunities, and we, we think through them largely unconsciously. Um, we navigate our lives in light of what it seems to be good, the good life or the better life. We have this kind of background set of assumptions of what makes a good life. And we kind of order our lives and our decisions around this. And again, sometimes it's not very conscious. We just have this hunch that I'm not going to do that. And we don't even think about why. I remember uh, years ago, I, was, I spent a summer at the beach town of Ocean City, New Jersey. And um, there was a, 
a deli there that we used to go and buy junk food at. And I still buy junk food, but now I feel guilty because I'm old. But, you know, I was a lot younger then. And uh, so I was standing in line, and there was a little jar there that said penny candy. And it literally was a penny. That's how long ago it was. And, and so I pulled a few strands out, and I was eating them while I stood in line. And I got to the front of the line, and I said, uh, okay, here's the money for this. Oh, and here's the three cents for the candy I ate. And the woman said, wow, you're really honest. I said, my, I said, my integrity's worth more than three cents, right? It's, it's, it's like, it wouldn't occur to me to eat the candy and not pay for it. Now, it wasn't really a conscious thought. It was just how I was navigating my life in terms of what kind of person I think I should be. And we do this navigation to be honest, it's not really against a backdrop of a well-thought-out philosophy of life. Sometimes that can contribute, but we kind of just make choices based on what seems good, what seems better, what seems to fit. So I want to introduce a concept that's been helpful to me in this called core identity. And when we think about our lives, the thing that's most visible is our actions. And that's on the surface of our lives. Um, our actions kind of reveal how we place ourselves in the world. What do we spend our time doing? Do we pay for the candy or not? Do we tell the truth? How do we navigate our relationships? But these things are visible, they're on the surface, they're very important. But we, we all know that our humanity is much deeper than that. And so beneath our actions are what we could call our attitudes and opinions. And sometimes this is our emotional life. And, and there's a relationship between these. If I have a certain attitude or opinion or expectation, then that's going to shape my actions. And of course, that influence goes the other way as well. If I, if I consistently pursue a certain kind of action, that shapes my attitudes and my opinions. Aristotle was very big on this, that we habituate ourselves into a, a, a set of character traits. He said we... we Become virtuous by doing virtuous things. And the action is part of what shapes our character. And I think he's absolutely right. Now, deeper than our attitudes and opinions is what we sometimes call our worldview. We can also call this our set of assumptions. Now, a worldview, and those of us who traffic in apologetics, we talk a lot about worldviews. Um, they tend to be kind of worked out philosophical um, sets of beliefs that govern lots of the other things that we do. And um, they're very, very important. But we also have assumptions that really don't belong in worldview. Like, I have an assumption that life should be easy. I don't know where I got that. One of, my, one of Jeannie, my wife, who's here, one of her new say sayings is, why do I think that something begins with the trauma of birth and ends in death is going to be easy in between. Right? Well, I still have that assumption. Right? And, and it, it shapes my expectations. That's not really embedded in my worldview. 
And so we have assumptions and worldviews. Now, for the longest time, I used to think that the worldview is the deepest thing about us. And I would do teaching on worldviews and, and how they shape our attitudes and how they shape our actions. And I began to think, nope, worldviews are not that deep. And I, I, I can tell you a brief story that illustrates this. When, when we were in Connecticut, I got an email from a, a student, a, a first year student, who's, no, I think he was a third year, who said, can we get together for lunch? I'm having lots of doubts about my faith. And so we got together, and I kept trying to figure out where the doubts were. And I couldn't make any traction, it was all vague. And finally, it took me about an hour, it would probably have taken you like 12 minutes, um, I asked the question, tell me about your relationships. And he said, oh, I started seeing this woman. It's going really well. She's not a Christian, but it's great. And I knew exactly what had happened. There was something deeper than his worldview that captured his attention in a way that kind of rocked his confidence in his worldview. And I call this our core identity. I started calling it this because I didn't have a better name, and, and now I just keep saying it. It's our core identity. Um, it's much deeper than any theory. Our core identity is my deepest beliefs and desires about who I am and who I want to be. That's what my core identity consists in. Deeper than my theory about life, that God is real, that Jesus is the Savior, that there is life after death, I've got this sense of who I want to be. And that actually functions as a fulcrum in terms of whether I will continue to believe the things I believe or I will begin to drift away from them. If something captures my, my um, deepest desires about who I want to be, whatever captures that is going to eventually become reflected in my worldview. And so um, as we talk about how people deconstruct their faith um, and why people drift away, a lot of studies are saying that people drift away because they no longer can think Christianity is true. I actually don't believe that for a minute. I think they no longer believe Christianity is true at the end of the story. But they drift away because something catches their sense of who they are. It could be disappointment, fatigue, suffering, or the disconnect Mary Jo's talking about between what I expect about the Christian life and what my experience is. Over time, that can drive a wedge. And, and I often tell my students, if you lose your faith, this is why you will lose your faith. Because something captures the deepest desire about who you are and who you want to be. So we navigate our lives along the contours of our core identity. What makes sense to me fits with who I want to be. And of course, fittingness comes in degrees. Some things really clearly fit. Like, it never occurred to me to steal that candy because I'm an honest person and I want to be an honest person. So it wasn't really an option. It wasn't something I thought about. 
And, but other things fit, like, wow, maybe I should write a book on this because it's important for the progress of the gospel and because that is important to me. Right? Certain things make sense or don't make sense based on our core identities. So the notion that we have a core identity raises questions. What are our deepest desires? What do human beings long for? What do we want? I think, fundamentally, we're longing to be human. Every person, I believe, is fighting a terrible battle to be human. And it, and it focuses everything about us. We desperately want a, a real, robust, rich relationship with our own humanity. Now, that's a weird thing, we're longing to be human. No one says, I long to be human, out loud. We say things like, I want to feel alive. I want a job I'm passionate about. I want to do something that matters. We make bucket lists. We want a rich experience of our own humanity, meaning, joy, purpose. So on our way over here this morning, Jeannie and I uh, stopped at the coffee place, The Human Being. Love, good coffee, great name for a coffee shop. And, and as we were at the drive-thru, one of the women working inside the place had this t-shirt that says, be a good human being. I thought th that captures exactly what we're talking about. It's this aspiration to live a good human life. And it's also a, a cute advertisement for coffee. So tomorrow morning, all of you drive through, right? And don't forget to tip the waiter, the waitress. So we have this deep desire for a rich relationship of our own humanity. And so we can ask ourselves, how does this um, drive manifest itself? And, and it does in many ways. Our deepest values are centered on persons, on human beings. At the core of everything we care about, I'm going to argue this in more detail, is the value of human beings. On the other hand, we also strive for goodness. Everybody wants to be good and wants to be known to be good. We, we might think that we are intrigued by evil because we like movies where there are bad guys. But we watch those movies from the safety of our living room. And we've got the remote in our hand. And at least for Jeannie and me, we don't, we, we don't like the really scary movies. We're, we're, we're ready to stop it if the evil gets too bad. So it can be intriguing, but in reality, we desperately long for goodness. Third, we rejoice in beauty. Now, this is what Fuzz is going to take up in more detail, so I won't say any more about it. But beauty plays a central role in how our longing to be human is manifested. And we pursue freedom. And by this, I don't mean metaphysical freedom. Are we free or determined? Or political freedom, which is closer and very important, but some kind of personal freedom. Am I becoming the kind of person that I want to become and that I think I should become? These are just some of the ways our drive to be human is manifested. 
Um, so in what remains, I'm going to focus on our deepest values are centered on persons. And my thesis is that the Christian story captures and explains our longing to be human better than any other story. It, it, it has the resources to ground and explain this desire. So I used to give a talk like this and say, you all remember 9-11, but many of you weren't born when 9-11 happened. So it's more like the way Pearl Harbor is to me, right? It's before your, your conscious experience, but you know what happened at 9-11. And one of the really intriguing things about those events, as later we could reflect on them, is nobody grieved for the buildings. We grieved for the people. We just had this horrendous earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Nobody grieved for the trees that went down. But we're grieving for the people, many of whose bodies are still under the rubble. Because we value persons. They fit into our deepest desires. We think, no, that should not happen. People should not suffer this way. Because they're valuable. So I'm going to briefly talk about three ways the Christian story grounds and explains the value we put on persons. And first, if the Christian story is true, the most fundamental reality in the universe is a person. And this is obvious to Christians. God is personal. He has the, the capacities that we have, the very capacities that make us persons, rather than things. These capacities are reflected in God's own nature. Persons in the Christian story came first. Now, this first way the Christian story explains our longing to be human is not unique to Christianity. It's actually shared by any of the monotheistic religions. Right? Any that holds that God is personal and created us, created the universe, has this resource. Um, but, and there are implications of this for us. So the first implication is that the universe is made by a good God for his own reasons. Again, this is fundamental in our theology, but it connects to our deeper desires. The universe is not an accident. It was made on purpose for God's reasons. Therefore, it's worth exploring. Think about that. The fact that the universe is intrinsically valuable and worth exploring, that's what actually grounds the value of the hard sciences. God created us in a world we can explore, and he gave us the capacities to explore it. It's almost like sometimes you're in a McDonald's with a playland, and you see the father of toddlers walk them up to the ball pit, and then he goes, go. And they jump in in pure delight. That's kind of what the Garden of Eden is like. I've created this world for you to explore. Go explore. The universe has value. 
right? We see this all throughout the scriptures. God's fingerprints are on it. His extravagant generosity is seen everywhere. I think that's why there are so many galaxies. That's why there are so many different kinds of frogs, right? So I was, I was speaking at a, a, I was a guest in the a philosophy of religion class up at the University of New Hampshire some years ago. It was right after I wrote my book on the New Atheists. So we were talking about that. And uh, after class, we had a great Q&A. The professor stepped in and said, all right, here's my question. Why dinosaurs? And, and it, I think he was thinking, why would God make dinosaurs if nobody would ever see them? And so I said, well, I think the answer is because they are so cool. <laughs> Every five-year-old kid knows dinosaurs are cool. And he, was, he thought, that's a great answer. Right? I mean, think about the delight. Wouldn't, if you were God, wouldn't you create dinosaurs? Of course you would. It's like, wow, how fun is that? This is the, the world God has created. It's an implication that the most fundamental reality is personal, and God creates for reasons. Secondly, implication, we are made by a good God for his own reasons. And this is the theological framework that we're made in his image. And this has to do with many aspects. One, as I mentioned, is our capacities are reflections of the divine capacity. We know because he's omniscient. We are agents and can make a difference in the world because he's the creator. We have an artistic drive for beauty because his creative activity is not just functional, but beautiful. We have a moral nature because he is the good, to, to co-opt one of Plato's terms. Human beings have objective and intrinsic value because we're made by a good God for his reasons. We have cosmic meaning grounded in God's reasons for creating us. And Mary Jo talked a lot about meaning and value in a world without God. And it was really good the way she made this distinction between meaning and value and ultimate meaning and value. And I'd like to say it this way. We, we don't want to tell our atheist friends, your life has no meaning. Because she's going to say, what are you talking about? I find lots of meaning in my life. I love my family, I'm in, uh, involved in things I think are valuable. The distinction is between what we could call local meaning and global meaning, or cosmic meaning. Without a person who has reasons to create the universe and create us, there's no cosmic meaning. Now, we can still find local meaning, and that meaning is important to us, and we have to grant that as we engage our friends. I got ahead of myself. There we are. Local meaning, no global or cosmic meaning. So the first thing, if the Christian story is true, our being human is grounded in God it's himself. So it has value. It's not weird in the cosmic scheme of things. The way it is on an atheistic worldview. It's like, 
how did we come to be these creatures who wonder about how we come to be? There is, there, there's a weirdness to it. It makes sense on the Christian view. Second, if the Christian story is true, the most fundamental fact in the universe is intrinsically relational. And this is, we get in Christian theology from the fact that God is triune. So this is a, a, a distinct contribution of Christian as opposed to monotheistic um, theological thinking. God's relationality is intrinsic to his nature. God didn't have to create us so we could have friends. It just, he, he was fully expressing his full relational capacity within the Godhead. And he created us out of an overflow of the love within the Godhead. He didn't need us. Our relationality, the fact that relationships are central to our value structure is fundamental in the Christian view. So the implication here is the centrality of relationships is grounded and explained because God himself is relational. And a few things that come out of this, it's no wonder that the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our lives. If your relationships are going well, your life is going well, for the most part. There are going to be some possible exceptions. If your relationships are not going well, your life's not going well. Our relationality is central to how we navigate our life. Another implication is that it's no wonder that the moral life is centered on how we relate to one another. The moral life is not simply internal, how do we think about things, but it's how do we love one another because relationality is central in the universe. So if the Christian story is true, our relational nature is grounded in God himself. Relationality is as deep as anything in the universe. And we are connecting with the depths of reality as we experience and express love for one another. A third issue is that in the Christian story, if the Christian story is true, God himself became fully human in the historical person of Jesus. Now, because God is fully human, every truly human endeavor has intrinsic value. So one of my colleagues at Yale is a literary critic, and he said this, but I have to admit, when I told him that I quote him on this, he doesn't remember ever saying this, but I, I remember it. If God became fully human in Jesus, then everything that is true, truly human is part of his redemptive concern. And so God's redemptive concern is our total humanity. Sometimes we give the picture that what God is interested in saving some dinky little part of us that we call the soul. And the rest of our humanity doesn't matter. That's not the Christian view. We get this view, I think, because we watch Looney Tunes. 
and when the anvil falls on the character's head, the next scene, the character is up on a cloud playing a harp. And, and we get this vision of the afterlife as some subhuman existence. And, and it's, it's amazing how prevalent this is even among Christians. The other fact about Jesus' incarnation is that God became fully human after sin entered the world. So sin that distorts our humanity does not annihilate the value. I think we're in danger um, of believing in the omnipotence of sin. And sometimes we think sin is more powerful than God. That sin can erase all of the goodness God put in the world. You can't do that. God is much more powerful. And sin twists everything, but it doesn't annihilate the goodness. And this is why even after the fall, God would deem it appropriate to become fully human. Some of the Gnostics thought it couldn't happen because sin made physical stuff intrinsically evil. So God would never take on a body. And they denied the incarnation accordingly. The Christians said, no, fully human. Everything that's human is taken up in the person of Jesus, therefore taken up in his redemptive concern. Because Jesus is fully human, our future is human. The Christian story is not a story of escape from our humanity. It's a story of growing into our full humanity. And there's two aspects to this. One is our growth in our relationship with God through Christ now is a growth into fuller humanity. When I allow Jesus to change my life, to shape my core identity, to help me live out the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul expressed in Galatians 5, I am living a more fully human life. The life of discipleship is a call to a more fully human life. And it makes sense when we think we're called to be like Jesus. And Jesus was fully human. And he was fully human without sin. So he is the picture of what human life ought to be like. The second aspect of this is in the new heavens and the new earth. There'll be a city that we will explore and we'll continue to cultivate the world that God has remade and we will continue to grow into fuller and fuller experience of our own humanity. The afterlife is a place in Christian theology where we are more fully human even than we are today. And this is why the Christmas carol says this. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. We feel our worth because he became human. This is a distinctly Christian affirmation of our humanity. So we care most deeply about persons. Personhood lies at the core of our values, at the core of our core identity. 
If Christianity is true, the value of persons makes sense. It fits. It affirms the things that I think almost every human being knows, but rarely reflects on. And the more we can help people reflect on their own humanity, the more inviting the Christian story is. We all have the same task. The common human project is to navigate our lives in light of what seems to be the good or the better or the best life. Everybody's doing this. And the longing to be human is in part a quest for what we could call a well-grounded humanism. And humanism is an ism. You can tell by the last three letters. Right? In case you're wondering, how do you tell if something's an ism? You look at the last three letters. And, and that means it's a worldview, or it's a, it's a posture. Humanism is a set of commitments that puts humanness at the center, the value and flourishing of people are at its core. And so one of the big questions for us is, oh yeah, I already skipped that one. It's widely believed that the only viable humanism will be secular in nature. Now this is part because of a movement called secular humanism. right? And that used to be really big in the church because every 10 years we, we get worried about something and we try to fight it. Right? It was secular human. Well, first it was rock and roll. Right? <laughs> then it was secular humanism. Right? And then it was postmodernism. Now it's critical race theory. It's like, I don't know what it's going to be tomorrow. But, you know, there, there's this sense that, okay, that wasn't very nice. Secular humanism um, is, is a movement of philosophers and theologians and other people that put the center of humanity, um, the centers on humanity. And it's secular because these people believe that religious views cannot do that. And they wrote their first manifesto in 1933, and the Humanist Manifesto II was written in 1973, and that's what gave launch to a lot of Christian thinkers zeroing in on this as a, as a challenge. The manifesto has been adapted again in 1993. And um, so we get this picture. Humanism, is it going to be secular or Christian? The, the overwhelming um, tradition over the last almost 100 years is that a, a humanism has to be secular. And this is what the American Humanist Association says. Humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that without theism or other supernatural beliefs affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment and aspire to the greater good. I lifted this from the website. So humanism, the secular version is like we reject any religious claims, but we place the value of humans at the center. And that has kind of swept. It, it forms the assumptions of people. And we see that some of this began, I mentioned this sentence last night. Nietzsche, in his book, The Gay Science, section 132, 
What is now decisive against Christianity is our taste, no longer our reason. And where that fits into the humanism question is anything that puts down what it means to be human is distasteful. And so the only worldview or posture that's going to, that's going to be attractive has to have a place for the value of being human. And the secular humanist, maybe partly inspired by Nietzsche, um, assumes that the religious view can't deliver. But I think, what I've argued that our tastes point to Christianity. That it's actually the Christian view that better secures the place of humanity in the cosmos. And if you want to do a little comparison, think back to some of the quotes that Mary Jo read from Dawkins about how, at bottom, the atheistic universe is utterly inhospitable to our humanity. And the Christian universe, the Christian view, is utterly hospitable. Now, I've not argued that Christianity is true. I've argued that we want it to be true. And everybody wants it to be true. Our deepest values are better explained in the Christian story. The better version of humanism is Christian humanism. I think we need to recapture that as a, as a concept as a way to frame our investigations academically and culturally. We are Christian humanists because humanity is at the center of God's story for us. Thanks. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.